This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, hope you are doing okay in this crazy world we are all living in. This is E2, Entrepreneurs Exposed, and today we continue our series focused on businesses and their founders navigating the pandemic. Today on the show for the second time is Sean Martirosian, founder of The Burgers Priest, which sold to Recipe Unlimited in 2017. Sean's new restaurant initiative called The Fourth Man in the Fire is taking shape in ways he could not have imagined in a food scene plagued by a global crisis. In this one, we discuss Fourth Man's unique business model focused on driving down the price of a meal for the average family. We chat about the death of the food critic, why many restaurants will never open again, and how Shant has seen sales pick up in the wake of COVID-19, while much of the industry is being choked by little or no revenue. So without delay, here is my great chat with Shant Martirosian. Selling Burgers Priest to recipe to your new pizza concept that you now have. So why don't we start there? So yeah, I sold Burgers Priest June 1st, 2017. And um, I think I uh, really wanted to do nothing. I wanted to, I thought I was just essentially retired and uh, I didn't want to jump back in. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to do small projects and kind of spend time with my family. But then after like three months, I started getting really, started getting the itch and realizing that I can't stay home. Like I have to do something. And so I really started thinking about what was missing in the city. And I thought that pizza, while it's come a long way in Toronto, still has a very Neapolitan or neo-Neapolitan. Everything's kind of based on Naples-style pizza with a twist or just, you know, DOP Naples-style pizza. And I don't have, being from California, being Armenian, I don't have a personal connection with Italian pizza in the same way that, to be honest, most people don't have a connection with Italian pizza because we grew up on Domino's and um, Pizza Hut and pizzas that originated out of the American Midwest. So I wanted to bring something to the city that uh, was American with a Midwestern New York twist to it. I really started studying that, started focusing on that. I did a trip to uh, New York for a week. I went then was it, visited uh, some places in San Francisco, figured out what my recipe should be, and then started working on it. Bought a pizza oven, put it in my backyard, like a real, like a 
actual like a pizza no like a baker's pride pizza oven that they put in a pizza nova your neighbors must have loved that oh yeah they loved it they were getting the spoils um so it was that and uh you know then it was okay what kind of oven am i going to use and so i so i went all around the states uh testing different kinds of ovens different fuels i tested everything from electric to gas to coal to wood landed on electric then thought of a concept and again part of the frustration for me during that process was just going out to dinner with my family and realizing how expensive things are getting. So I, I decided to make a place that was a place where a family of four can go, have share a large 18 inch pizza, have a salad, have some beers and get in and out for 60, 70 bucks without any tipping. Um, so I created a place that has uh, no servers. It has iPads. You order your own food, you pay before you get it, but you never have to line up. You never have to clean up your own plates. You never have to do anything. It's full service without any of the waiting and without any of the real markup on alcohol. So beers are $3.99, glasses of wine are six bucks, Negronis are six fifty, and we only mark up wine bottles $15. So I try to make a place that's family friendly. Um, I always knew that the economy wasn't gonna last the way it is. I didn't think it would happen this quickly, but I wanted to create a place that uh, even during hard times, families or friends can go out and not spend a lot of money. And this is called the fourth man in the fire. The Fourth Man in the Fire, yeah, based on uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the Bible that went into the fiery furnace for their disobedience and were protected by the angel of the Lord. Um, and as a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar, who threw them in the fire, believed in Israel's God. So the, for me, the Fourth Man in the Fire is a place that wants to protect people from inflation. And uh, that's, what it, it, that's what it was up until this. Now it's just takeout and delivery, but uh, it will be again. And you come by this honestly. I mean, you, you went to Bible school or you were studying to be a pastor initially. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. And obviously a natural transition in names from Burgers Priest to this. Um, so what has transpired over the last four months and how have you guys pivoted given what's going on right now? Well, we started out, you know, just making trying to sell the concept, like having people come in. Everybody loved it. I had some real pizza problems in the beginning where the pizza I was making at home in my backyard was different than the pizza in the restaurant. And I realized it's because of the mixer and we were over kneading the dough and I wasn't putting enough yeast. It was a whole mess. But so for the first month, it was kind of just figuring out the pizza. And then we finally got it right. And then once we got it right, we started getting busy and things really started to get really good um, in January and then very good in February. And people were really getting the concept. They liked it. And then first week of March was good. And then this hit. And we hung on for as long as the city allowed us. And then they said, close the dining rooms. So it was either I'm closing the dining room and I'm going to wait. And I wasn't prepared to do that. So we converted everything to takeout and delivery. And it's been very, very good. Sales are actually higher now than they were before. That is interesting. And have you had yeah. to lay anybody off? So because we don't have a server model, we do have front of the house people. So we have like people that run the food, clear the plates, you know, explain stuff when you need it. I had four of those people. I had to lay off three of them. One of them I kept now to manage the takeout window and delivery and some of the logistics around that. But as far as cooks go, I've kept them all. And not only that, I've hired. When you were architecting this second food concept, were you doing this with this idea that you, that you mentioned, this idea that the economy is not going to last or the bull run is not going to last the way it's been going. Like, was that in the back of your mind when you were strategizing? 100%. Um, because 
it, it doesn't even really matter. I, I didn't. I don't think it actually really mattered whether the bull run lasts forever, um, because people are starting to feel the pinch, regardless of the bull run. I mean, inflation's getting out of control, slowly, 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 slowly. So before, in my thinking, I always used to think it's going to be you know you wake up one day and and a loaf of bread is a hundred dollars and. I've matured a little, and I've realized that it's 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 more of a uh, you know frog in a kettle scenario where it's just a little bit at a time. And I think once you start showing people that you could do things for cheaper, people start to gravitate towards it because they start to realize that you know you go out, it's 130 bucks. So okay, you can come here and it's 60. So I knew that people are going to start feeling the credit pinch as they start to look at their credit card bills over the next few years and start to make better choices. And this this COVID thing kind of just accelerated it. But do you remember the moment? Uh, so you said first week of March was really good, and things obviously were changing so quickly. Do you remember the moment when you realized this was going to reshape the entire restaurant industry as a whole? Yeah, it. it I remember. It. I mean, I remember. It, well, it happened in Quebec first. So Quebec was the first to say. We're going down to 50% capacity on dining. I think it was like on a Thursday. I knew I knew by Friday or Saturday they were going to announce something for us. So what I had already started to do is I started to say, okay, well, I have, you know, 56 seats in my dining room, and I have a 26 seat or 29 seat patio that I'm not using yet. So it's like, okay, let's buy the heaters. You know, let's let's try to to make it so we don't lose capacity. Um, but literally the next day. Uh, they didn't even do that step. They just said, we're shutting you down. So it was pretty quick. And then, but it didn't really start to sink in until I started to look at the models of the, you know, what the virus, how long things were going to take, where I started realizing a lot of my peers were thinking this is going to be a couple weeks, but I realized this thing's going until probably December at the worst, maybe at the best August or something like that. Yeah. And even then there's going to be some widespread permanent behavioral change. I think it's going to take a while for people to feel comfortable going out to eat at a restaurant again. How do you feel? I think so too. Yeah, I definitely believe that. And uh, it's definitely going to change a lot of things about how restaurateurs look at real estate, the kinds of bottles that are going to open up. I think a lot of guys that close aren't going to open again. And that's really sad. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to change everything. Not forever, but I think for the next couple of years, for sure. You grew up in California and then you later moved to Toronto. What were the circumstances around you moving to Canada? Um, my, my father died and my mom was a single mom and all the family that we had in California was my father's side and all of my mom's side of the family was in Canada and Toronto and Mississauga actually. So she wanted to be more closer to her direct family. So we moved. Does your passion for food come from early childhood or when did you develop it? It's something that, you know, if you ask my mom, she said, I've always had this kind of discerning palate where I would always question, really, really dig into food and really be with my mom cooking it and trying to figure out the best things and seeing something on TV and wanting to cook it and all that kind of stuff. And it's always been something that I love doing. I just never knew I'd end up doing it full time. Um, I remember my uncle in California looked at me one day. He took me to a, in California, there's hamburger stands and food stands everywhere. 
like not food trucks, but they're like just stands that are just set up. And he took me to this one place and I remember eating a hamburger with him and he just looked at me and he said, you know, this business is a great business to get into. I think I was like nine. Mm. And he's like, whether you're rich, whether your people have money or they don't have money, no matter what, people always want to eat. And I just remember him saying that. And yeah, it stuck with me. And then when I graduated school, I realized that that's uh, where my passion was. And it wasn't really until I saw a guy, I don't know if you know the restaurant, it's called uh, Geo's Really, Really Nice. Yes. It's the, it's the nose, you know, yes. the big nose. Yeah. And Leslie anyway, so right? that, that, that yeah, was Leslie close Bill. to your very first Burgers Priest, ironically. Yeah, very close. I remember going to that restaurant for my brother's birthday and I knew who he was because he was in some American Express commercials. Um, and I just saw him work the room. And when I looked at him, I knew that this is something that I really wanted to do. There was just a grace that he had and a command of the room that he had. And I was like, when I saw him, I, that was the moment where I said, I want to be a restaurateur. How did you, obviously, there's, we don't have enough time to go every, every single lesson learned, but maybe you can hit on some of the key lessons learned from Burger's Priest and some of the lessons that you're learning with your pizza concept that have strategically positioned you as a winner, I would say, in this industry. Well, for me, it's always started with the food, that the food has to be better than the next guy. And if you, and if you, um, like people always ask me, like, what do you do for, like, how do you, how would you start a restaurant or what kind of restaurant should I start and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I find those questions weird, but because mm-hmm. you, you have to, it's got to be in you and you got, like, if you don't know what you're going to cook, it's don't open. But for me, it's always been that if you make the food at home and however long it takes you, whether it's six months to get it right. If it's not better or the same as the best in the city, don't open. That's always been my my attitude. So with Burgers Priest at the time, I believed it was the best in the city. I believed there was nothing better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I opened. And with this pizza thing, it took me it took me like a year and a half before I I ate it and said, okay, this is better than anything in Toronto. What about the actual business model? So no servers, uh, iPad ordering, no tipping. Where does all this come from? This came out of frustration. I'm, I'm, I was a waiter for 10 years, 12 years actually. And I worked with a, a, a group of people that took waitering very, very seriously. And most of them are still in the field and they're all exceptional at it. And I think with the, with anything is like when you expand how many restaurants there are in the city, you expand how many waiters there are. And I mean, this is going to sound super arrogant, but talent pool is just getting more diluted. Uh, it's getting worse and worse. And good service these days is is getting harder and harder to come by. Mm-hmm. And so the frustration was how long you have to wait for things. So the way I explain it is the typical, you know, fast casual restaurant or any restaurant is you you walk in, the hostess seats you, hands you menus, leaves, a waiter comes over. What can I get you to drink? Well, we're going to start with water. He leaves, go gets water. Then says, what can you want? What do you want to drink? You tell him what you want to drink. He goes, gets that, then brings it back, then says, what, we, what do you want to eat? You order. And then he goes and rings it in and then you get your food. And then at the end, after you're done eating or even during your during the eating process, you have to if you need something else, you have to flag them down. And then when you're done eating, you have to wait for the bill, which is for some reason takes longer and longer. And then they bring the bill and then you say, oh, I need the machine. And then they have to go get the machine. And I just looked at this whole process and I said, like, this is crazy. And it wasn't until I went to the airport one day and I saw an iPad sitting there and a terminal beside it. And I just ordered my food, hit it, and the food came. 
that I was like, why can't we do this in restaurants? When you walk into the fourth van of the fire, the hostess grabs a cold bottle of water out of the fridge, seats you. So the second you sit, you have you have water. She explains he or she explains to you the process of the iPad. You then pick up the iPad, you order your food. You're not ever waiting for anybody. You order your food and drinks. And as soon as you want to push send, you push send and you tap your credit card on the back and it sends it. So now you have your drinks, you've ordered, your food's on the way, you've already paid, and you have water in front of you all within 30 seconds to a minute. So, and then when you're done eating, somebody clears your plates and you walk out. And this model, obviously with the exception of the personnel and physically sitting down in your restaurant, has moved entirely to what? Remote online ordering and then pick up at a takeout window? Yeah, so now it's remote online ordering or walk up pickup or call in. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're almost perfectly positioned for this, barring your, I guess, your, your lease obligations. Yes. I'm perfectly positioned as long as people have money. Mm-hmm. That's my only concern. It's like, how long are we going to bail out? Are people going to be bailed out for by the government? How long are they going to string this out? Um, and so that's really the only thing. But even honestly, even in a bad time, I think people are still going to eat. I do my pizzas a little bit you know, more pricey than, you know, the dominoes of the world. So there's going to be some competition issues there. But uh, yeah, that's really, that's really it. Where does the no tipping culture come from? Okay, so let me clarify that. We're not a no tipping culture. We're a no percentage-based tipping culture. So the idea that, you know, if I open up a $200 bottle of wine for you, that I should get 20% or 15% on that $200 wine when it's the exact same amount of work. I don't think works anymore. And, and, but let me tell you this though, if you're dining in a regular restaurant, you, you kind of have to follow those rules. And the reason for that is because of a thing called tip out. So the waiter, um, if you give the, if the waiter sells a thousand dollars in, in total product that day, typically, you know, the, depending on the restaurant, the, the waiter has to tip out to the house and then the house would distribute accordingly to whoever they decide to do, uh, between, uh, as low as 3%, as high as 8 or 9% in the higher fine dining restaurants, which means that if you went in and had a dinner for $1,000 and you were the only table that that waiter served that night and you left no tip, that person would have to reach into his pocket at the end of the shift and pull out, depending on percentage, 30 40 50 60 $80 and hand it to the house. Mm-hmm. So because that system is the way it is, percentage-based tipping needs to happen. But because at Fourth Man, we don't practice any tip out. The, I take nothing and the waiters or the, or the people on the floor and the cooks split everything evenly. There is no reason to tip on percentage. You just kind of tip on how you feel. What is the counter argument for, for this? I don't really know if there is one. I mean, I don't really think people really love tipping. I think it's you know, for when there's good service, I think you maybe want to leave something and we get when we provide that opportunity. But the the read, but the I just don't see a reason why tipping should be based on percentage. I mean, so many countries have don't do this and so many countries have gotten rid of it that I think it's just it's time and it's getting it's it's adding 20 percent to your bill every time you go out. And now you're tipping on inflation. So like, like when I started at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse as a waiter there, I think a filet was thirty-eight dollars, mm-hmm. or in a ribeye was, you know, forty-five or forty-seven dollars. It's ninety now. How have you guys worked with direct delivery apps like Uber Eats and others, and and have they been 
good partners during this time? Well, I have a great relationship with them because it was all relationships from Burger's Priest. Like when I sold Burger's Priest, we were almost, well, in some stores we were over 50%, but probably across the board, about 40% online and delivery. So all my relationships from Burger's Priest kind of moved over to this. And I mean, even when I was open for the dining room, I was still doing delivery and takeout, but it was just a very small portion of my business. Now it's become all of it. Do you think that direct delivery becomes the primary revenue source for all restaurants post COVID-19? For a while, yeah. I think for a while, yeah. And the, the challenge is going to be um, restaurants that can pull off their own delivery rather than relying on these uh, apps. Yeah. What is the fee structure there? It's a lot. I mean, uh, you know, they take... You know, for new restaurants, I think they, they start around 35% and you get a discount as, you know, you get a discount with relationships and, and those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. So in most cases, you have to mark up your prices to compensate for the fees. Food bloggers, food magazines, other review sites. Are there any that you work with closely? No, no. Everything's kind of moved. To be honest, everything is moved to Instagram and private people. Like when you look at, um, I was talking with somebody who's in PR and they were saying basically the food writer uh, and the food critic as we know it is kind of gone. There's most newspapers have let them go or are making them do more lifestyle food collaboration things. But the, the food critic, as they know, like everybody's lost their budget for it. Nobody does it anymore. And everything's moved to Instagram where you just have these social influencers who have a certain amount of followers. I think you mentioned earlier that a lot of these restaurants are just never going to open again. But I read a statistic that the average restaurant has something like 16 days of cash on hand. So you got to assume many of these restaurants are going to go bankrupt. Do you ever think that you are in a fortunate position to take advantage here? Not in a malicious way, but if this is a zero-sum game, restaurants like yours that are well-positioned for takeout and direct delivery become winners uh, at the expense of all these dine-in restaurants, right? And the longer this goes on with dine-in restaurants being closed, the longer I would assume your revenues are going to tick up. Do you think about it that way? I mean, it's hard not to. It's sad to, to think about the carnage out there I mean, because it is people's lives. It is people's, uh, it's in a lot of cases, it's everything people have and it's sad, but the truth of the matter is coming out of this, there's going to be a lot of opportunity in real estate and the ability to pick up restaurants for nothing or close to nothing and be able to open up multiple locations based on what's going on. Yeah, it's a sad reality. I, I do think about it. I'm not thinking about it right now, but in a year from now, yeah, probably I will be. Do you think about how fortunate you were to sell Burgers Priest to Recipe at the time that you did? Oh, every single day every single day. Yeah. I mean, the 2017 was an incredible time because, uh, you know, the online, online systems and all that's like the delivery platform really was at a peak when that happened. And there weren't a lot of guys online. There weren't a lot of guys, uh, doing the delivery thing. So sales were amazing. And then after I sold, you know, I think, there's been a lot more people on that platform. So I think I sold at the peak. I don't know the numbers anymore. I have no idea, but um, I'm very fortunate to have sold when I did. 
when I look at their portfolio, obviously I have no insight into their sales. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I mean, it's a public company, so I'm sure you could find out. But when I look at, when I drive by a mall and see a keg closed, I just can't imagine because that's every keg. It's every Swiss shot. Like I think, I think, what do they have open? They have probably have Burgers Priest open. They have probably some Harvey's drive through was open, maybe second cups and stuff like that. I mean, I can't imagine how much they're bleeding right now. Yeah. Very fortuitous. Uh, at the end of episode 40, which is when you were last on the show, uh, we talked about the three kinds of OCD. Maybe you can hit on <laughs> your perspective on each of those and what you meant by doomsday. First type is, you know, did I, you know, I got to wash my, my hands are too dirty. I got to wash my hands. You know, the second one is, did I forget to, you know, leave the iron? I saw is the iron running. I got to go back or the, the stove or something like that. And the third one is doomsday. And that's kind of what I have. And it's what I constantly try and fight because it, it hasn't, hasn't served me well. It served me well sometimes because only the paranoid survive. I believe that, but mm-hmm. the sometimes it, it makes me make decisions out of fear, and that's not good. Is this pandemic an example of a doomsday for you, or is it something else? I think it's something else. I think doomsday would be what would come out if things go bad here. I mean, I think this could turn into a doomsday situation, but right now it's not. So for some people, it's really bad, but I, I think doomsday is when it's bad for everybody. Right now, when you wake up, are you glass half full or glass half empty in this regard? Does this become pseudo doomsday situation or do we navigate our way out of this? I'm trying very hard not to think doomsday about this. I can see people giving up freedom. I can see people doing that willingly. I know that governments don't give it back. Those kinds of things make me nervous. What does giving up freedom look like in Canada? Let's use Canada as an example. I think I think if certain things like a, a mandated vaccine, mm-hmm. like if they forced you to do something, mm-hmm. um, I think if they forced anything that's by force. Um, I've heard the, the head of the WHO the other day saying, you know, if we can't find... Um, uh, there, there, it's possible that we might have to start going into people's homes and taking family members if we find out that they're asymptomatic or something like that. Um, when I when I hear stuff like that out of these people's mouths, uh, it makes me nervous. It's like, what what does that mean? Even the whole idea of the government making us making people close restaurants and I mean, I understand that you know if there's a problem and things need to happen, but the fact that there's no like when you look at when you look at what the government's done to restaurants and what they've done to for restaurant owners, they've actually done nothing. Like people who are closed, they've done, they've offered zero support. Like all this stuff about Trudeau getting up there and saying thirty percent if your sales have gone down thirty percent or fifteen percent, you know we'll pay seventy five percent of your employees or stuff like that. But that doesn't help the guy across the street from me who, you know, has a full restaurant that's now closed. That can't do takeout because it was a fine dining place. And that's most restaurants in Toronto right now that just don't have a delivery model. Yep. So everything's been employee focused. Nothing's really been owner focused. And so I mean, the, the fact that they're forcing people to close and not letting them make a living and all that kind of stuff is, I just don't force. And it takes three to five years to come up with vaccines. Okay. 
So if somebody puts one together in 12 months or 18 months, you got to be, I'm not, listen, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, vaccinate my kids, but you know, I don't want things forced on me that aren't tested. Like, what does it mean? Like, okay, because what does that look like? If you don't get this vaccination, what does that mean? You can't re-enter society? You know, like, where, what are the implications of all these things? If you had to make some important decisions about what sort of measured approach makes sense for the economy here, and maybe more specifically for restaurateurs, what sorts of measures would you suggest? Oh, you're asking me to talk about stuff way out of my own. The, the problem is, is that these guys know way more than we know. So, like, I, I find it funny when people talk about national security things when you're not being briefed by the CIA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I have no idea. I just, uh, I think that if you look at Denmark, Denmark had the same, uh, like per capita cases that we have, and they are, have plans for the next two weeks to start reopening things, reopening restaurants, reopening, uh, uh, people, putting people back to work and those kinds of things. And, uh, right now from our government, we're getting no answers. You know, sometimes people say May, sometimes they say July, sometimes they say uh, December. Um, so I'm not going to speak into it to say, you know, this is what we should do because I don't know all I don't know all the information. But I wonder I just wonder if there was another way. When you talk about the flip side of this and Trump had alluded to it and he kept I guess he, he changed his mind. Uh, he had alluded to back to work by Easter. When you talk about the flip side, the alternative of doing this and opening up the economy prematurely, the risks and the consequences seem even more grave. Do you not agree with that? I agree with it based on the data we have. I mean, but the thing is, is that like I, I tend to try, I try to look at everything in, in, in through the lens of personal responsibility. And I look at it and say, okay, ab- you know, what's happening is that able-bodied young people are typically getting sick with this and recovering. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a high risk person, like somebody who's older or has the conditions that they're talking about, um, I, I, I think a, a pros- possible approach would be to say something along the lines of, okay, if you're in this category, stay home and we're going to support you or get your family to support you. Like right now, my mom and my stepfather are in are at home right now. And I've told them they're not allowed to leave the house and whatever they need, I will bring it. I'll put it on their doorstep, a Lysol it, and that's, they can go out by themselves and grab it. And if you don't have that support system, okay, fine. Then you can appeal to the government. And I think that would be a lot cheaper than an $82 billion bailout mm-hmm. and let people who are less risk, you know, who have, you know, less risk to go out and do stuff. But again, I'm not a doctor and I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows how this thing spreads, but shutting down the entire economy for all this time. I mean, at some point or another, we have to look at Mr. Spock and say, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. But because my fear is, here's the thing, is that people are going to die and that's a horrible thing. But I'm afraid of the alcoholism that's happening in people's homes right now. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid of the uh, addiction to pornography that's happening in people's homes right now. I'm afraid of the depression and the mental health that this this strain. I just talked to um, a friend of mine who's a counselor and said that the domestic stuff's going through the roof right now. So there is a flip side to this is, okay, well, what is the social impact on having, you know, 30, 40% on infla- on, on, uh, unemployment? Yes. And, and do you have potentially even more deaths uh, per capita as a result of these other second and third order consequences or issues that surface as a result of containing or suffocating the economy short term? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the liquor, uh, the liquor alcohol sales, I think, are are up, right? 50% or something. They're Mm, up huge. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, and to be honest, I mean, look, pizza sales are up. I mean, these are these, all these things kind of go hand in hand. It's indulgence, whether it's indulgence in alcohol or food or pornography or whatever it is. Um, these things are going to go up because people are bored and people need purpose. We're built for it. And, you know, I come at that from a biblical perspective, but you don't need to. People need purpose. People need drive. People need to get up and do something. And if you take that away, they're going to fill their lives with something else. And if they and and the chance of filling it with something bad is very likely because it's a lot easier than saying I'm going to go and do, you know, Rocky four style workout in a barn. Do you feel more do you feel fortunate to be in canada versus the u.s right now as a dual citizen oh 100 i uh emma and i were going to move to um california after we sold the company okay um but when we went there we realized that this isn't the time and it's a lot uh, better place to visit than it is to live at this point we didn't know if we wanted to raise kids there and when i see how uh, bad things are getting there. Like the last time we were there, it was the homeless situation there is out of control and it's getting to a point of lawlessness. I mean, it's already lawlessness in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, where the police are just not enforcing laws anymore. Um, you can't leave anything in your car in San Francisco for more than five minutes without the window being broken. And, and you can say that's sensational. It's actually true. It's insane. They've changed the law so that that, you know, if I think theft over a thousand or theft, sorry, theft under a thousand or theft under 500 is no longer a, a felony. It's a misdemeanor mm. and it's just out of control. I'm happy we didn't move. How do you structure your days and have you changed your routine in a way that you hadn't imagined before? <laughs> I mean, we, I was, I was only open for dinners and then we've now opened for lunch and today I'm taking delivery of another oven. Hmm. So like I'll be here till two in the morning, making sure the oven goes in so we can meet demand. So I've had to really, I've gotten into basically I got into burgers. I'm in burgers priest mode from 2010, hmm. you know, and I, I didn't know I had the energy to do it, but uh, I'm doing <laughs> it. <laughs> what does your wife say about that? She's going through a hard time. I mean, she's doing the, she's now doing the homeschool thing because the schools are closed, mm-hmm. you know, our cleaning lady's not there anymore. So she's. She's having a really hard time, and I'm finding myself having to be a lot more compassionate than uh, I used to be. Mm-hmm. So just actually got off the phone with our therapy. We did a phone therapy today, and so they told me I have to be more compassionate. I would imagine lots of couples across the country, across the world, going through some very, very difficult times between each other. Yeah, that's what she told us today. That's what my friend who's a therapist told me the other day. Um, we had some police officers in here having pizza the other day, and they said that you know, I was asking them how things are going. They said that, you know, domestics are up and uh, it's, it's sad. It's a very sad thing. It's, it's kind of what I experienced when I sold Burgers Priest. I think I said this on my last podcast that when you, when you go, go to work and you spend a, a lot of time at work and you come home and you're there for an extended period of time, you almost have to get to know who your wife is again. Um, in the same way that uh, the, uh, I think I said the hockey players, like that when they go out and they play hockey for however many games, 82 games, whatever they have, and they play for 10 seasons, and they come back to their wife. It's like you have to get to know who they are because you don't spend enough time with them. You're on the road. Mm -hmm. And that's probably what people are experiencing. Fourth man in the fire, pizza, obviously, for takeout, and you're doing direct delivery through Uber, right? Anybody else? Uber, DoorDash, Foodora, and uh, we have a commissionless 
platform on our website for pickup uh, called Chow Now, which is great. Um, well, congratulations on the uh, pivot through this and the sales that are looking up. So well done and all the best for the future months and hopefully this blows over. I hope so, buddy. I want things to get back to normal. Um, <laughs> whatever the new normal will look like. Uh, exactly. Okay, man. This has been great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Adam. Anytime, eh? Okay. Thanks, Sean. Take care. thought about starting your own podcast do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world well now it's easier than ever with electricast hi i'm mark netter and i'm peter rafelson we're the founders of electricast media whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one join electricast to grow your audience monetize your content and build your community with our simple sign up you get free promotion world-class analytics premium ads and personal support go to electricast.com and join our community today Electricast, transform your influence. Electricast. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are and live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast.